This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. This is the Beyond Zero community show. It's 5pm on a Monday. Welcome to one and all. Uh, Marissa and Pete from Doing Time seem to have gone on holiday, so they weren't uh, before me tonight. But uh, it's just me in the studio, and Vivian has left left us all with a Naomi Klein recording uh, called Transitioning to Climate Justice. This comes from the Alternative Radio Network, which you can find online, www.radio.org. Uh, alternativeradio.org and as usual Naomi Klein is an articulate and persuasive speaker without further ado here's Naomi this can sound overwhelming anything about climate change can sound overwhelming and it's certainly easier to talk about changing light bulbs than changing the economy but here's what we need to remember It's not like we're talking about an economy that is working beautifully except for the small matter of rising sea levels. We're talking about allowing sea levels to rise in the name of protecting an economic system that is failing the vast majority of the people on this planet with or without climate change. That's Naomi Klein, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Naomi Klein... On Capitalism versus the Climate Human beings and the natural world are on a collision course. Human activities inflict harsh and often irreversible damage on the environment and on critical resources. If not checked, many of our current practices put at serious risk the future that we wish for human society and the plant and animal kingdoms and may so alter the living world that it will be unable to sustain life in the manner that we know. Fundamental changes are urgent if we are to avoid the collision our present course will bring about. Those words of warning were written in 1992 by some 1,700 scientists, including more than 100 Nobel laureates. Here we are, more than two decades later, still talking, still drilling, and doing very little to protect our precious planet from an economic system that prioritizes profits over the well-being of Earth. 
To talk about these issues is Naomi Klein. She's an award-winning journalist, author, and filmmaker. Her articles appear in major newspapers and magazines all over the world. She's the author of the bestsellers No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and This Changes Everything. She spoke in Seattle's town hall. This changes everything. The reason I chose this title is not because I think my book will change everything, but because I think climate change changes everything, and I think that that's a good place to start the discussion. And when choosing a title, it's good to choose a title that starts the discussion where you think it should start, because a lot of interviews begin with, why is your book called that? And the reason why it's a good place to start the discussion is because it's important for us to understand that we have procrastinated for so long that there are now no non-radical solutions left on the table. So if we stay on the road we're on, we face radical changes to our physical world. This is what the vast majority of climate scientists tell us and now what some of our most conservative state institutions are telling us. The World Bank, the International Energy Agency, PricewaterhouseCoopers tell us that if we stay on the road we are on, we are headed towards warming of between 4 and 6 degrees centigrade. That's 10.7 Fahrenheit on the high end. Um, that is incompatible with anything that we might call organized, civilized society. Um, all the models break down, um, really, after three degrees. I mean, the scientists tell us they don't know what this would look like beyond the fact that it would be radical change. It would be whole huge cities underwater, whole countries disappeared. It would be massive crop failure um, and possibly much worse. All we have to do to arrive at this scary place is nothing. All we have to do is not react as if this is an existential crisis. This is known as business as usual. <laughs> Being us, only more so because that's what we do. We grow more and more and emit more and more every year. Um, so that's one radical scenario on the table. Another radical scenario that I discuss in the book is what's increasingly being taken seriously among the very serious people, and that is um, intervening in the climate system with, through uh, um, radical technologies at a global scale, sometimes called geoengineering, to try to make those outcomes less disastrous, potentially making them more disastrous. We don't know. You can't uh, find out before you do it because you can't build a model of the climate system to scale. Um, so, yeah, I spent a fair bit of time hanging out with the would-be geoengineers, the smartest guys in the room who are talking about fertilizing the oceans, um, pumping sulfur into the stratosphere, uh, solving the problem of pollution with more pollution. That's pretty radical, dimming the sun. Um, now, the good news is that it's not too late to prevent these radical physical and engineering scenarios. Um, but the way we do that at this point involves radical changes to our political and economic system. Um, these are certainly considered radical, at least by current political standards. They involve... Um, questioning and really breaking, as I'll argue, every rule in the free market playbook 
to which our leaders are still in thrall. Now, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the need to challenge this so-called free market ideology um, because I feel like we can spend a lot of time talking about various solutions, cap and trade versus cap and dividend, um, and we lose sight of the fact that actually, you know, none of it's happening, right? Certainly not at a national level, certainly not at, the, at a level that will get us anywhere near where we need to go. And that has to do with the ideology that has swept our world. So the argument I, I make about why we have failed so miserably to rise to this challenge, I mean, and the fact that we've failed is now beyond debate since our government started meeting in 1990 to come up with a plan to reduce emissions. Global emissions have gone up by 61%. Um, so that is not a good record. Um, and... There are all kinds of theories that have been put forward to explain this in action. We sometimes hear that it's just human nature, that this crisis seems too far off and that we're hardwired to respond only to immediate threats. But this, um, you know, th this rationale doesn't really ring true anymore because, of course, climate change is looking more and more like an immediate threat. It certainly looked like an immediate threat when Superstorm Sandy um, flooded Wall Street. Um, not that Wall Street is, has changed its behavior in any way. Um, so there's something, there's something else. Um, and we know that we humans have responded to abstract threats before um, when our immediate safety was, was not threatened. Um, we have this in our history. Um, so then it must be something about us. Um, and I think a lot of us believe this, that, 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 it's, that it's our generation that is too selfish. Um, so this is one of, the, one of the rationales. The other rationale is just that it's too complicated, right? That you have to get all of these countries to come together and agree on a set of rules, and it's just impossible. We hear this a lot. But, of course, our governments have come together, and they have agreed on all kinds of things, whether it's the Montreal Protocol, um, on ozone depletion, whether it's arms treaties. But what about the creation of the World Trade Organization? What about a global trade architecture with binding rules um, that our governments have man managed to um, build in this very same period when they were failing to deal with the climate crisis? So clearly, we can cooperate and come together if the interests um, are, 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 are aligned with those in power. So I think that, you know, there's little bits of truth in all of these rationales and some that I haven't mentioned, but I think that we haven't paid enough attention to one of the biggest obstacles to change, which is just bad timing, bad historical timing. And by this I mean that scientists have known about climate change for a long time, but the point where we lost all plausible deniability, we the public, was really 1988. That was the year that James Hansen testified on Capitol Hill that he now had a high degree of certainty that there was a connection between emissions and warming. That was the year by then 87% of Americans knew about global warming. And that year when the editors of Time magazine um, needed to choose their man of the year, they decided not to give it to a man. They were still only giving it to men. But, to, but man of the year 1988 was planet Earth, um, uh, the, the planet in peril. And there was, it was a really interesting essay that accompanied that cover story, which talked about how climate change really called into question the whole 
Western civilizational paradigm of dominance-based thinking, the idea of the earth as a machine. It traced it back to Francis Bacon. It was this really interesting essay to read in Time magazine. You could never imagine it appearing today. Um, And there was... You know, speaking to people who were involved in the movement at that time, there was actually really a feeling that this was the dawn of a new consciousness, this moment. And then the Berlin Wall collapsed the next year, 1989. This was the moment when Francis Fukuyama declared history over, um, when the ideology that in most parts of the world is called neoliberalism um, declared victory over all other economic models. Um, and it was then exported around the world. 1988, the same year that Hansen testified, was the year that Canada and the U.S. signed the historic free trade agreement that was then expanded into NAFTA, um, became the paradigm used, the model for future bilateral and multilateral trade deals. A few years later, the World Trade Organization was formed. So you had these two parallel processes. Now, this was a problem, and it was a problem not just because the, the global economy, as it was being called, that was being created, was a particularly high emissions one, um, but because the ideology of neoliberalism had as its pillars privatization, deregulation, cuts to taxes paid for um, with cuts to social services, now called austerity, never-ending austerity, um, all locked in through this architecture of free trade or investor rights deals. Now, what I do in the book is show how each one of these pillars of this ideological project that so successfully spread around the world has stood in the way of what we need to do to respond decisively to the climate threat. Um, And I'll just give you a, a few quick examples. I mean, a lot of this is obvious. Take austerity, right? I mean, the idea that, um, I mean, in my, my lifetime, all I have known of the public sphere is, is it's dismantling. You know, my parents' generation built things. Um, but since I have been a conscious adult, it has only been about stopping the cuts, stopping the attacks. We don't get to build things anymore. Um, And, of course, this has reached catastrophic levels in this country, particularly in Europe in the wake of the the financial crisis, which has been passed on to the public. And you see the direct clashes because, of course, if we're going to respond to climate change, we need to invest seriously and on a large scale um, in not just protecting the public sphere but reinventing it. And we see the clash when disaster strikes. I mean, you see it in this country during Hurricane Katrina, that clash between heavy weather and weak, neglected infrastructure, a government that doesn't seem to be home, can't seem to find New Orleans. Um, We saw it during Superstorm Sandy where, you know, if you, you have these widely divergent experiences of a natural disaster, um, or not a natural disaster, but, um, you know, if you have resources, you're kind of okay, but if you're in public housing that has been allowed to decay, the lights are out for weeks and weeks, no one shows up, and it was, you know, a bunch of, you know, 20-somethings from uh, Occupy Sandy, as it was called, who were doing frontline work, which was, you know, amazing. And we did some filming of this makeshift 
health clinic that was started in the Rockaways, and it was it was incredible. I mean, it was just heroic work. But the people there going were going. Wait a minute, where is the government? <laughs> you know, why are we doing this? There were historic floods in England this year, and it was really interesting to see the logic of austerity um, clash with what the public wanted in that moment, which was they wanted a forceful public response. Now, this was a problem for 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 David Cameron, sort of Mr. Austerity himself because he had slashed the agency responsible um, for flood response, knowing that increased flooding is, is, is clearly going to be one of the impacts of climate change in, in Britain. Nonetheless, he had laid off more than 1,000 people, canceled hundreds of flood defense programs, and people connected the dots. And he was so panicked in this moment. He had another, another 1,000 jobs were on the chopping block. Um, and Cameron was so... Um, was so panicked that he had to publicly say, money is no object. We will spend whatever it takes, right? And that's just a glimpse of how, you know, if we take this crisis seriously, this logic of austerity cannot hold. You know, our governments have to find the money, and that means going to where the money is, um, which part, part of the response is you know, going after the fossil fuel companies, polluter pays, we'll come back to that. But, you know, this is happening all over Europe. In Greece, the, the, the fire trucks go, don't have spare tires. Going into forest fires, I mean, Greece is a tinderbox. And this is how austerity is playing out in that country. At the same time, in the name of exiting austerity, Greece is being told that they need to drill for oil and gas um, in the Ionian and Aegean seas, which is madness. This is a, a country whose two major sectors are tourism and fisheries, right? So, you know, when I call the book Capitalism Versus the Climate, people say, well, that's divisive, you know. But the thing is, is capitalism is already waging war uh, on the climate. And so the, the point of this is there are different levels of denial. You know, we talk a lot about this a right-wing den den denial where it's really obvious and it's easy to laugh at the people at Fox News. But I think we all engage in our own versions of climate denial. And one of the reasons why we have to stop is that, these, is that if we look and let ourselves feel the depth of this crisis, we have some of the most powerful arguments we've ever had to argue for a saner economic system. I'll give you another example, free trade. Now, a lot of people in this room, I think, have been involved in these battles. How many of you were, 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 were part of the Battle of Seattle 15 years ago? A couple? A few? <laughs> um, you know, one of the things we're finding is that, you know, we knew when we were fighting the World Trade Organization um, that this was a system that sacrificed workers' rights and environmental rights in the name of short-term profits. But we did not know how right we were. Um, because what's, what's been happening in recent years is that some of the best climate policies are being successfully challenged in trade court. And I'll give you an example from close to home for me. And Ontario has... Uh, one actually the most or had the most ambitious uh, um, uh, emission reduction program in North America it was lauded by many people in this country, including al gore for its for its extremely ambitious plans to get one hundred percent off coal this is canada 's most populous province um, at, by two thousand and fifteen and the, the the Green Energy Act was introduced in 2009 in the midst of the economic crisis. And it was introduced because of concern about climate change, but it was primarily introduced because of concerns about unemployment. Because Ontario is an economy that is extremely reliant on 
manufacturing, and in particular, car manufacturing. And our auto sector was getting decimated by the fact that the big three automakers um, were on their knees at this point. Um, and it was easier to close Canadian plants than to close American plants when you're going to the American government for a massive bailout, which is what was happening at that time. So there were huge numbers of layoffs in the manufacturing sector in Ontario. So very smartly, the Ontario Liberal government um, introduced this green energy plan that had these ambitious redu- emission reduction targets, but also had very ambitious job, job creation targets and required that any, um, any, any player, any company, but there were also you know, non-companies, co-ops and so on, communities that wanted to benefit from Ontario's new feed-in tariff program, um, had to manufacture 40 to 60% of their equipment in Ontario. Um, so it was a job creation plan. It was about rebuilding our moribund manufacturing sector. And I profile this company um, in the book called Silfab, which was sort of like the poster child for how this was supposed to work because it was a, it's a solar plant on the outskirts of, of Toronto that opened up in a closed down um, auto parts factory. So it was the perfect symbol, like old economy dying, new economy opening. All these um, workers who had lost their jobs at Chrysler and Magna, which is a big auto parts manufacturer, um, got jobs on the assembly line making solar panels for this, for, for this um, new program. And um, 31,000 manufacturing jobs were created. So all is going well, but then Japan and the European Union challenged Ontario's green energy plan at the World Trade Organization and argued that that requirement, that a certain percentage of the jobs um, remain local, was discrimination against their companies, against European companies and Japanese companies. And the WTO ruled in their favor, and, and Ontario lost. And, and rolled over very, very quickly, in fact, um, the, in part because the Canadian government wasn't about to fight for renewable energy when this is an extension of the oil and gas industry, as you may have noticed. But we're seeing more and more of these cases. This is not an isolated case. The U.S. has challenged China's um, renewable energy subsidies, India's renewable energy subsidies. And it's tremendously ironic because you go to, you know, you listen in on a summit like the one that just happened in New York. And it's all about government sort of pointing the finger at each other. You're not doing enough. No, you're not doing enough. I won't lead. No, you lead. Right? But in fact... What these governments are doing is running to the World Trade Organization and trying to knock down each other's windmills at precisely the moment when we need all of our governments to be rolling out the, you know, the most ambitious plans they can and to do it in a way that will get political buy-in, right? I mean, this was about a just transition. This was about supporting a sector that was getting hit hard and having a just transition to the new economy. And we were told that's not allowed. And in the book, I quote Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who talks about how absurd it is that we are leaving the fate of the planet in the hands of what he calls silly lawyers who didn't even understand the issue when they wrote the rules. Nonetheless, it is happening. Now, the good news is we're facing a whole flurry of new deals, of new trade deals. That's not good news in and of itself. But the good news is I think we're, we're starting to pay attention to trade again after tuning it out for a long time. A lot of us are very concerned about, the new de- about, about TPP um, and um, the European deal and how, specifically how it is undermining uh, um, the actions that we need to take on climate. And I think that this, once again, is the best argument we have ever had against these deals. Um, we cannot allow trade to trump the planet. 
It doesn't get much stronger argument than that, but that is precisely what these deals are doing. And we can't be afraid to use that argument. So another pillar of the um, neoliberal era, of course, is privatization. And I want to talk a little bit how this, um, the, the, the way in which so many of our cities, states, provinces have, um, have, have sold off key sectors um, that are central to the energy transition that we need to enact um, is, is, is standing in the way. Now, many of you have heard a lot about Germany's transition to renewable energy, which is a really, it's a complicated case. You know, it's not all perfect, but nonetheless, it is definitely worth appreciating that a highly industrialized economy like Germany that does not have a lot of sun um, has managed in a decade and a half to go from 6% of its electricity coming from renewable energy to 25% coming from renewable energy, mostly wind and solar, most of it decentralized. Um, so this is a real success story and one that shows that when we want to and the political will is there, we can move quickly. You know, um, And we need those success stories. One of the things we don't hear about the German transition is that one of the things that has allowed Germany to transition as quickly as it has is that in hundreds of cities and towns, big cities as well as small towns, citizens have voted and decided democratically to take back control over their electricity grids from the private players that privatized them in the 1990s. And... And they're doing this because they want to be part of this energy transition. They want their, their power to come from clean energy. And the private players are not willing to move fast enough. Um, so, they're, so, so they are deciding to take their, their energy back. But it's not only that. It's also that they want the... The, the, the money from the power generation to stay in the community. So it's, it's both addressing the austerity crisis and climate change at the same time. It's, the problem is not just that, that, um, that, the, that it's dirty energy. It's also that the money is just hemorrhaging from communities into shareholders' pockets, and that's not acceptable either. So it's become a pro-democracy movement. It's become an anti-austerity movement, and it's a climate movement. And these are the types of paradigms that we need, I think, to win. And it's also starting to spread. It's happening in this country too. Boulder, Colorado, with you know Boulder, this you know green city, very much like you know some of the cities in in this region. It had this problem, which is despite the fact that everyone bikes and war fleece, um, and uh, um, all, their, all of their energy was coming from coal, so they wanted to switch. Um, they went to their local uh, private energy provider, Xcel Energy, and, and, and talked about how they wanted to switch to renewable energy and were basically shut down. And at that point, started exploring taking their power back, taking their energy back, not because they were ideologically opposed to privatization. It's because they wanted to be part of a green energy transition in line with their values, and the profit-driven interests of this company were standing in their way, and they took that step. And I think it is interesting that these aren't ideological movements. These aren't movements that are starting by saying we're anti-privatization. They're movements saying we want to do something about private. We want to do something about climate change, and discovering that they need to take on the logic of privatization in order to make that happen. There are other ways of bringing in green energy, and I think there are a lot of examples of that in this region. But there is clearly a tight correlation between 
very ambitious renewable energy targets and keeping energy in public hands. We see examples of that in this country too, like Austin, Sacramento are two of the cities with the most ambitious emission reduction targets, and they never sold off their energy. So there's lots of public utilities that are producing dirty coal. But I think the point is that it's easier for us to change our public utilities than it is for us to change for-profit enterprises. Um, So so I said Germany is complicated. One of the reasons it's complicated is that while Angela Merkel has been willing to put in place some great incentives to encourage renewable energy, what she has not been willing to do is say no to the fossil fuel uh, industry and coal is is uh, is continuing actually to expand, and even though demand is dropping in Germany, the coal companies are just exporting that energy. Sound familiar? Um, and so it's not a simple success story because you know sometimes we we tell ourselves we can do this all with market mechanisms and having the right incentives in place, but it's clear that it, that it has to be a combination of finding creative ways to say yes to what we want and bold ways of saying no to what we don't want. And part of um, you know part of what has us stuck right now is that we have a leadership class globally that has really lost the knack of saying no um, to big companies uh, and and you know when they're when they're dangling big investment projects it's just you automatically say yes and you look at Obama and that it has taken him now more than three years to just say no to the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, he's, you know, I'm starting to think he's going to leave office without I just punting this decision. So the exciting thing is that as it, with our leaders failing to lead, failing to, to do what they need to do, there is the emergence of what some have started to call blockadia, this grassroots um, regulatory structure, let's just say, um, of community. <laughs> It's been so powerful in this part of the world. I, I really do think that the fossil fuel industry did not know what they were in for when they decided to build so many tentacles through the Pacific Northwest. And this, in many ways, is the flip side of the carbon boom that we're in the midst of. Because, of course, you know, the fossil fuel companies are doubling down. They're building all kinds of new infrastructure. They're doubling down on some of the dirtiest carbon sources. They have to build all this infrastructure, and it takes them into territory that is distinctly hostile. You know, I used to say that the World Trade Organization built our coalitions for us. I mean, in many ways, the fossil fuel companies are building our coalitions for us by their sheer ambition of their coal trains and their oil trains and their pipelines and their LNG terminals and the rest of it. And that was what was so exciting about the climate march, because you saw that network that is place-based really coming together in the streets in common purpose. Across Australia on Community Radio, you're listening to Naomi Klein on Capitalism versus the Climate. This is Alternative Radio. If you would like to purchase a copy of this program or to find out more about the Alternative Radio series, please call 04 1359 7828 or you can visit the website at araustralia.org. Please stay tuned for the end of the program and further details on ordering. You know, in Canada, one of the most exciting parts of the emergence of this fossil fuel resistance, as, as, as our friend Bill McKibben calls it, is the way in which it is building 
really powerful ties between non-native and native communities. Whenever there's a big resource battle, we see these connections, but there's something new happening. We saw this really clearly with the emergence of I Don't Know More, and there are all these resistance movements, whether it's to the Cherry Point Coal Export Terminal or the Northern Gateway Pipeline through BC. I think what more and more of us are starting to understand is that indigenous First Nations treaty rights and Aboriginal title are the most powerful legal barrier to the plans to just flay this continent. And those rights become more powerful when there are mass movements defending them and when they are embraced by whole societies. And this is really starting to change. It's actually changing the way we think as well as the way we fight. Because I think that it's about more than, and it has to be about more than just a sort of extractive relationship to those rights. Like those rights are useful to us because um, they help us protect our water, so we want to use those rights. That's exactly the wrong, the wrong way of thinking about this. That these, that these are rights that come out of a vision of how to live well, um, that were hard won and hard protected, and they point us towards a non-extractive regeneration-based way of living on this planet. Um, and that is the most hopeful and exciting part of this, of, of this new wave of activism. This can sound overwhelming. Anything about climate change can sound overwhelming, and it's certainly easier to talk about changing light bulbs than changing the economy. But here's what we need to remember. It's not like we're talking about an economy that is working beautifully except for the small matter of rising sea levels. <laughs> we're talking about allowing sea levels to rise in the name of protecting an economic system that is failing the vast majority of the people on this planet with or without climate change. By responding robustly to climate change, in line with what scientists are telling us, we have a once-in-a-century opportunity to solve some of our biggest and most intractable social and economic problems. We can create countless good unionized jobs in the next economy. Every dollar invested in renewable energy, efficiency, public transit creates six to eight times as many jobs as that dollar would create if it went into oil and gas infrastructure. Those jobs can rebuild our ailing public infrastructure, and that infrastructure will give us more livable cities, stronger communities, healthier bodies. We all know this. We can find the money by making polluters pay, whether it's the fossil fuel companies or the bloated defense companies or the financial speculators. To do any of this, of course, we must dramatically reduce the power of corporate money in politics. Now, everybody who is trying to get anything done... Um, in this country that is in any way vaguely progressive, whether it's fighting private prisons or for gun control or universal health care, knows that money in politics is the single greatest barrier. The question that I'm left with is whether climate change can provide the big tent um, that we need to build a new kind of coalition and tell, put us on a science-based deadline and tell us that we cannot afford to lose. I think it can, and I'll tell you why. The atmosphere is already our big tent. Um, we are already under this big tent, <laughs> um, and 
we have to start acting like it. We're coming up on the 15th anniversary of the Battle of Seattle, when the streets of the city were choked with cheer gas and flooded with hope because a mass coalition, a movement of movements, put the system of short-term corporate greed behind the World Trade Organization on trial. It disrupted the negotiations and emboldened internal dissent in the to- and the talks broke down. They never quite recovered. But after September 11th, that movement broke apart. Some were spooked by the new war on dissent. Others turned their attention, understandably, to stopping war and increased criminalization. But we stopped talking about the system underneath it all. Then three years ago this month, the Occupy movement sprung up and put corporate capitalism on trial once again to draw the connections between the logic of deregulation and austerity and the inequality crises ravaging our communities. The whole world listened in. I firmly believe that movements like that never die. They just go quiet for a little while. They learn, they change, and reemerge. Now another movement is taking the stage, the climate justice movement. It's made up of all these past movements and many more older ones, deeper ones, the civil rights movement, the indigenous sovereignty movement, calling for the deep shift in worldview that we know this crisis is really about. Because underneath all of this is the truth that we've been avoiding. Climate change isn't an issue to add to the list of things to worry about next to health care and taxes. It's a civilizational wake-up call, a powerful message spoken in the language of fires, floods, droughts, and extinction, telling us that we need an entirely new economic model and a new way of sharing this planet, telling us that we need to evolve. Thank you. Well, if we want the good life for all 7 billion people on this planet uh, with sustainably grown food, sustainable use of precious raw materials, enough per capita wild spaces and rainforests, clean water, healthcare, and living space. What are your thoughts on the needs and benefits of voluntary population reduction? Do you think we can ignore that question? I'm not sure what voluntary population reduction means. And I, I, I do think that, I wouldn't say that population has nothing to do with the ecological crisis, but I think that we sometimes overplay it. Where population is growing a fastest is in sub-Saharan Africa, and um, that is where emissions are lowest. Um, if, you know, if we want to deal with this crisis most effectively, we, would, we talk about consumption uh, among the wealthiest people on the planet, not procreation among the poorest people on the planet. Uh, do you think climate change is the perfect topic to introduce a wider conversation about capitalism? I mean, in a sense, we have uh, uh, the equivalent of a right-wing climate denial might be, on the left, capitalism denial, the desire to use euphemisms like uh, the free market or corporations without asking the kind of wider questions that connect to things like you say about how elections are funded and, and uh, those other things. There's a larger constituency um, of liberals that really does not want to talk about capitalism than I anticipated. Like, a lot of the criticism of the book has just been about the name. You know, well, well, one of the subtitles that, the, the subtitle I almost went with is the revolutionary, the revolutionary power of climate change, as you've, you know, heard from the talk. Like, that's the argument I'm making. But I do think that, that this core tension between our economic model and what our 
climate needs from us, you know, that, that we have an economic model that is built on short-term expansion and we, have, we need to contract our use of resources. We don't need to contract every part of our economy. We can grow other parts of our economy. And we need to grow other parts of our economy that are low carbon already um, and that are going to, um, the, the, the parts of the economy that are going to make this transition possible. But at the same time, we do need to contract. So I think we do, we dance around, we really don't like saying the word capitalism, uh, particularly in this country, but even like it's even easier to talk about growth than it is to talk about capitalism. And, there, and, and, and I actually think growth, focusing on growth is less helpful than talking about capitalism because I think in a lot of people's minds, when you're talking about capitalism, you are talking about greed. You're talking about, cor- you're talking about corporate greed and, and you get closer to that. Um, Whereas if you talk about growth, then the first thing people think is that it's all going to be contraction and it's all going to be loss. And that's a very negative discussion to have. And it isn't true that that it's all about contraction. It's really about how we manage our economy. I'd just like to say I I always enjoy these talks, but it sometimes feels like it's kind of preaching to the choir. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on disseminating all the information that you have that you presented tonight to people who mainly get their information from news outlets that won't that it goes against their financial interest to report on all these topics. They might have corporate ties to fossil fuels, so they won't want to report on the climate march. They won't want to report on any of these issues and will continue to maintain that status quo. So just how do you think that this this movement is best going to be spread out to beyond the people who already know about it? I feel like that is starting to happen. I mean, I, I, and 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 some of it's happening in a more old-fashioned way. I, I mean, this the climate march in New York was an extraordinary exercise in popular education, a really old-fashioned community organizing. I mean, it was an incredibly diverse march. Did not look like the choir. It mobilized all kinds of communities that are normally left out of the environmental movement, um, and. Um, and that was that was not done with the help of any corporate media. That was like really legwork, you know. Um, and and it was that hard, old-fashioned organizing work of building bridges um, across different constituencies, doing popular education. And I think we need to return to some of that, um, where you know, like just teach-ins, just basic popular education. A lot of people don't participate in the climate discussion because it seems really, really wonky and they're afraid of making a mistake. You've got the science side, the policy side, the UN, like, you know, it's, it's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, worlds that have their own language and their own jargon. Um, and so just unpacking it for people and creating context where, where they're not afraid to make a mistake um, is really important. But I don't know about that this is about going through corporate media at this at this stage. I mean, there is some of that. Um, but, uh, you know, like there was a years of living dangerously and that kind of, um, that kind of work. But I'm not sure that that's what builds a movement. Um, I think the, the, the movement building is when people see the connections with their daily lives and it comes from trusted sources. And I think we spend a lot of time sort of thinking about how we reach people who watch Fox News, you know? And we actually have a lot of work, I think more work, just building a broad, diverse, progressive movement, you know, and, um, and building bridges between the various constituencies in, in that world. Um, and 
before we worry about you know reaching the climate deniers. I don't know if that's what you're talking yeah, about. That, but, yeah, that helps. Thank you. Yeah. If you could send some advice to yourself back in time when you were first writing No Logo, what would you say? Well, I didn't really know anything then. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that, that uh, you know, coming back to the last, um, the last question about sort of preaching to the choir, I think one of the, one of the things that I've learned is just how like nourishing it is to be in a movement. I think we kind of belittle it when we talk about it as just like preaching to the choir and, you know, as if this work doesn't matter. But when you're taking on really powerful forces, it can be pretty brutalizing. And if you're going to do it, you know, and if you're going to immerse yourselves in, you know, some of the worst of what humans are capable of, which anybody who's involved in social justice work is doing, um, you also need to counterbalance that by being in community and, um, and valuing that community and supporting each other. Yeah. The anti-nuclear movement has not really been brought up that much in the talks about climate change. And I just want to bring up that in nuclear power and nuclear weapons, which are one and the same, the question is this. We have mining with nuclear, we have uranium mining, we use coal for the spent fuel. And I just wanted to say that I find it important to include all of these things within talks and climate change. And thank you for all the work that you do. Hi. Um, how do we sometimes uh, get over the hypocrisy in fighting for a fossil fuel world when, you know, uh, you can't really get away from fossil fuel. I mean, when you go to the grocery store and you go home to your polyester sheets and, and the plastic and, and everything that you buy. And, you know, even a lot of people who went to the climate protest, um, you know, flew there. And how do we get over this conflict within ourselves when we use fossil fuel every day and we don't want to, but you really can't get away from it? It's a great question. In, in some ways, I think that we overemphasized, we, the you know, environmental movement, overemphasized the individual actions at the expense of the big systemic changes that we need. And, you know, we, it was all about recycling and carbon offsetting and turning your personal life into, like, a low-carbon piece of performance art. And a lot of it was, like... No, but and a lot of it was quite sort of classist, too, because in so, you know, there are so many communities that have no good transit options where people are so overworked as well that people are having to make convenience-based decisions um, that are about low cost but also about zero time, and this is what our culture does to people. And this idea that it's about being perfect and green and buying more green stuff, you know, um, was super alienating to a lot of people (laughs) Um, and I think was part of why it was the climate movement was so homogenous, meaning white and middle class. (laughs) And... Um, but I think there's, there's something really key. And I actually think it's that I don't think we should let ourselves off the hook. Like we should all try to bring our actions in line with our values. But I also think that um, we should all embrace our inner hypocrites and stop playing gotcha. Because if you need to be 
cure, you know, if you need to be fossil free in order to fight fossil fuels, that's a great way of having a really small movement. (laughs) My question is, how can your organization lead in inspiring voter registration across in all the places where we have too low of voter registration and to teach America a new story about finding the right candidates to run for office and to win for office because the stories that we're told right now have to do with money and here we have a situation where we have the right person running against somebody who needs to be out of office. And I would just add that it's, you know, it's about getting involved in politics at every level, including at the local level where maybe that it's a little bit easier to break through. And I would be remiss if I left Seattle without just saying how incredibly inspiring it was for everybody to watch the $15 minimum wage victory. Um, that, that kind of ambition is really contagious and inspiring, and all, all eyes were on you. The Alberta tar sands are so destructive, but the cash flow is so overwhelming that there's no control possible. Do you have any good news about the Alberta tar sands? Yes. The best piece of news we've had so far, which is Stat Oil, which is a big Norwegian oil company, huge player in the tar sands, announced the suspension of a multi-billion dollar tar sands investment because uh, one of the reasons cited was uncertainty about pipeline capacity. That is the strategy of cutting off the arteries that we've all been involved in. As you've pointed out, the indigenous nations are making this region a choke point of fossil fuel shipping, but Swinomish and other tribes are also working with historically hostile local governments on climate change adaptation. Um, And putting this book together with your last book about disaster capitalism, um, have you seen people preparing for these inevitable um, storms, disasters, power outages that are coming in a way to position community organizations um, in a place where we can um, instill disaster cooperativism um, and ways of bringing together communities and using that to also help build those bridges you're talking about? That is a great Great question. You know, it certainly, it certainly was a, a big part of the discussion post-Sandy in New York of just that the communities that fared best were communities where people knew their neighbors, weren't afraid, you know, weren't, because there was a lot of fear, too, where, where it was like all this fear of, of, of looting and, 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 and just this understanding that this social fabric that we're able to build with one another, yes, seawalls are important, but relationships are even more important. Checking in on one another, um, you know, that just, um, you know, when communication systems break down, as they inevitably do, that we still know each other's names and where to find each other and knock on each other's doors and check in on each other. This has to be understood as part of disaster response. And so, yeah, I think we need a really broad understanding when, when, that, that responding to climate change isn't just about rebuilding the, this sort of public sphere in the, in the sense of big state. It's about reclaiming the whole idea of the commons, of the public, of the communal, of the communal um, at every level against... 
against the attack uh, on, uh, you know, and, 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 and the idea that we are nothing but atomized individuals and there's no such thing as society. I mean, these are the big, the, the, that's another piece of the big war of ideas that we need to be fighting and also building. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, a farmer's market is disaster response and um, anything we do to strengthen our communities and get to know one another and build those relationships of trust is, is part of preparing for the, for the storms ahead. Um, I, I realize that I didn't respond at all on the nuclear question and I do think it is an important point on this because it's important to remember that this I, this vision of responding to climate change um, by building a more equal society is by no means the only way of responding to climate change. Um, there is a shock doctrine scenario um, that is very clear, and that is you know not just the profiteering from disaster, but it's also you know the positioning of these big engineering fixes that continue to put communities at risk. So more and more, it's about talking about replacing fossil fuels with nuclear, um, you know, t- positioning GMO uh, crops as climate ready, climate smart, um, and attacking small farming as unrealistic and, you know, some agrarian fantasy, which is, you know, one of the ways I'm getting attacked at the moment. A few years down the road, it will be, you know, the geoengineering fix as more realistic than any of the stuff that we're talking about. So I, that's why I think it really is about identifying the values that we want to govern us um, as we move forward and uh, together. Even more important than identifying individual policies is identifying those values. And one of the, you know, one of the values that I think we need to put at the front of our movements is that the people who have been on the front lines of our toxic extractive economy need to be first in line to benefit directly from the next economy. And I also think about the no new carbon infrastructure, you know, drawing the line, this is the keystone principle. And I, I would say we need to extend that to, to, to the principle being no more sacrifice zones, that we know that we can power ourselves without sacrificial people and sacrificial places, right? I think that that's really important to the nuclear discussions. Who are we asking to eat the risk for these technologies? And if it's not us, we have no right to ask it of anyone. Yeah. That was Naomi Klein on Capitalism versus the Climate. She spoke in Seattle. Naomi Klein is an award-winning journalist, author, and filmmaker. She's the author of The Shock Doctrine, and this changes everything. You were just listening to Alternative Radio, a weekly award-winning series heard exclusively on Community Radio. AR, on air for over 25 years, is an independent radio production. Our sole source of financial support comes directly from listeners, just like you. AR has featured such... Yes, and 3CR is also funded by listeners just like you. We have a raffle here at 3CR, which uh, I think it's $2 a ticket with some fabulous prizes. This will help keep 3CR in the black and running for the next few months. If you'd like a ticket, just ring up on 94198377. The first prize is a bike. 
uh, from Reed Cycles. The second prize is a getaway one night at Chinaman's Creek Chinaman's Creek House in Castlemaine and there's a third, fourth, fifth and sixth prize as well. I'll leave it there but please call up. Uh, some fabulous prizes there. Call 94198377 and speak to Loretta. That's it for the Beyond Zero Emission Show tonight. You've been listening to Naomi Klein at a talk on transitioning to climate justice there in Seattle brought to us courtesy of Alternative Radio. It's uh, been another fabulous week with the show being put together yet again, uh, thanks to Miwa, Teddy, Roger, Jody, Vivian, of course, uh, and myself in the background. You can hear us on podcast on bze.org.au or the 3CR uh, podcast page on 3cr.org.au. You can also, don't forget to listen to our sister show on Friday mornings with Michael and Niels. Uh, that's 8.30am on a Friday, a, a more technical s- discussion around the solutions for climate change.